Are you a sheep? No. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. This is for all the girls who grew up without strong geek role models to help them discover their geek dreams. For everyone who's ever been quizzed about their video game knowledge because girls don't play, girls games. Don't play games. Geek Hearing is working to bring female identifying geeks into their prime to be the role models, dreams and voices. Are you ready for this? Welcome to Geek Hearing, a critical geek culture podcast where we talk the good and the bad parts of being a chick in a male-dominated environment. Hi, my name is Monika and with me today is my lovely, glorious, amazing and hilarious co-host Amanda. Hi, Monika. Hi, Amanda. I'm great. I'm super excited. I'm also really excited. Why are we excited? Because, drum roll, we're having a guest today. And we already had a hilarious pre-talk, so welcome, listeners. Say hi to our amazing guest, Kate Wiswell. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hello, Lady Geeks. <laughs> hello. Like lady Geeks, I like that. I like that a lot, yeah. <laughs> so for those of you listeners who have no idea who Kate is, if you don't, shame on you. But if not, then... Great you're here because now you can learn. Kate is an amazing author, writer, and math geek and general awesome person. She's going to tell us a bit more about herself. Who wrote a book that's called Full Frontal Nerdity, which is just the perfect book for our show. So we have her on. So hi, Kate again. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. That is Oh, that was a deep sigh. I know. It's rough times in the United States, but I'm really happy to be with some, you know, like-minded people. <laughs> some... That is true. It is true. It's some nice to be of... around people that get you. <laughs> yes. It's nice to have something fun to do uh, when, you know, life is, the outside world is a little depressing. <laughs> yes, that's very true. Amanda, and you share a similar heartache right now. <laughs> With Brexit and all, and US yeah. being the US, so yeah. you, I feel you too. You have my sympathies. You know, <laughs> Thank you. one thing that Northern Ireland does have going for it is we actually have a sitting a sitting parliament for the first time in three years. So you know, baby steps. Right. They actually declared a climate emergency. I'm like, holy shit! Government's doing something. <laughs> Your That's government awesome. declared a climate emergency. Yeah. Amazing. I know, they've been back in office for maybe a month, maybe two months, and they're actually doing stuff. Cool Well, may beans. you be an example to the rest of us. That is true. Well, let's see. Let, let's, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. <laughs> true, <laughs> yes. Although hope is an act of resistance, right? So yes, <laughs> I, I remain true. hopeful. <laughs> oh, me too. So, Kate, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I am a... A comedy writer out here in Los Angeles, or, uh, well, I write basically anything that I feel like writing, but I primarily focus on screenplays. Uh, I also teach logic part-time. I help people get into law school by teaching them how okay. to be a little bit better at their logical reasoning and arguing. Uh, but, I know it's, it, it, it satisfies the logical side of my brain 
because I've never been able to decide between the two. Because before that, I was uh, I was a English major at Harvard, but before that, I was an applied math major at Harvard. So you know, <laughs> it's been a lifelong <laughs> struggle. Yeah. Which do I like more? <laughs> math and science or creativity and logic is a nice little happy place in the middle where you get to be both so that is really great cool. yeah i like that it's like i think when, it's why not both <laughs> exactly i believe in having it all <laughs> amazing love it right if i haven't yet figured out the husband and children part i at least know how to be both creative and sciencey at the same time <laughs> but sometimes that's more satisfying than well Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> the, the other thing. <laughs> the other thing sounds definitely more exhausting. I agree. No dissing against mums, though. I'm all. If you do you, is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I just look at every friend I have who is a mom, which is most of them. Everyone. <laughs> Same. I just, I just think, I don't think I can handle that. Yep. <laughs> You're a super. I also human. think that. I <laughs> yeah. know. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, you're amazing. Don't think I want to do that, though. <laughs> right. You are amazing. I bow down yeah. to you, and I will go back to my life, which I enjoy. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's more also the adding on to what you already have going on, and I'm like, how do people do it? That's yeah. just a lot. That But yeah. Question. Yeah, well, I mean, the answer is they either have a lot of help or they don't. <laughs> they don't do it. <laughs> true. True. They don't do it all. Yeah. So shout out to all the moms out there. You guys are great. Yes. Whoop, whoop. And and the dads. And just that is people true. who are parents and you're doing a good job. I think that we just need to recognize that there's a lot of parents out there doing a great job. Yes. Amen. Yeah. I don't know how and you I'd do say it. shout out to the kids, but really kids, you're the reason why it's so impressive that parents are parents. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and I mean, at the beginning they don't do much besides maybe be a bit cute so that's what pulls them out of the misery and stuff so yeah, they wouldn't remember, be cute then i remember thinking when my brother uh, uh was starting to have children when my first nephew was you know on the way and i just thought i mean my brother's barely older than me i thought he's he, he's not going to be an adult he's not going to be a parent but then you watch the process and you're like oh that's why they start small and cute and immobile <laughs> because <laughs> then you can kind of like learn as you go That is true. I mean, if you gave birth to a toddler, it would be the end of it. Like, that was just, nobody would be able to handle oh, yeah. it. yeah. <laughs> I've seen things. I've been there. <laughs> My nephew's 18 now. Like, I can't even cope. So, I, I know. Him. Mine's he about was... to be 16. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> like, what? But that's a cool age as an auntie to be like, yeah, sure, I'm going to pick you up when you've been out and stuff. So, that's great. Yeah. Yes. I love being an aunt. You can give them back. That's the best thing about it. <laughs> right? It's so my dream, though, is eventually when I retire, I want to have a bookstore slash bakery called Aunt Katie's. That, oh, I love it. Yeah. It's just like the bookstore has just like round the clock story time running so that people can come and drop their children there and then go next door and have cake and maybe coffee and adult conversation with other adults. Nice. It's like, we'll, we'll watch your kid for you for an hour That's or two. That's a good goal. <laughs> I like that. It's not only self-fulfilling, it's a public thing for the public. It's a good it's deed. It's a public service. Say yes. thank you. Couldn't think of the word again. I got you. That's what I feel like is the best service that those of us without children can provide to our friends who have children. Adult that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, yeah. It's true. It's true. 
It's so funny. I'm like, I one of my friends has kids. <laughs> one? What? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like one of my friends has kids. My 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 friends are all very much like at least the ones that I'm close to. They don't have kids yet. I was gonna say, is that because your other friends who had kids are no longer your friends, or just because not enough of your friends have kids yet? Like people that I'm kind of acquaintances with have kids, but I wouldn't say like I'm ready to go and be like, hey, let me hold your baby. Not that I would ever say that anyways, but um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't do babies so well, so I'm not upset that none of my friends have kids yet. Yeah, give it time. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You have plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> or so they say. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Oh, man. So let's move into our rapid fire round, Kate. We're oh, going to bombard you with questions and your job is to answer them as fast as you can Ooh, all right i'm nervous but okay let's go okay where are you from originally new hampshire in new england in the united states and now los angeles nice when are you a geek since so you can think like uh, what year maybe and a story of a geek first geek, geeky experience sorry the word geeky is really hard to say sometimes <laughs> it is sometimes yes um yeah. i've been a geek since birth so since the end of 1976, and now you all know how old I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, my my parents read The Hobbit to uh, so I have one sibling who's older, my brother. They read us The Hobbit like a little bit at a time, just repeatedly. Like we get to the end and we'd start over. And so I'm pretty sure that I heard that. I think that that was the very first story I ever heard, and I may possibly have heard it in the womb. That's cool. awesome. Yeah. I think you're like the earliest geek that we 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 have, like from womb, basically. Yeah, yeah. But my parents are fairly nerdy, so it's not that surprising. I was also born like right as Star Wars burst into the universe. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, yeah, hit the sweet spot. Yeah, that is sounds true. like it. Yeah. Uh, so, what are your biggest geeky influences? So you can think anything like books, movies, to teachers, games, or. Right. Whatever. So besides the Lord of the Rings, uh, basically my two first influences entirely in my life were Carrie Fisher and Albert Einstein. I don't know why I was in love with Albert Einstein. I mean, everybody else had like Tiger Beat posters on their walls. I had <laughs> at least four different Albert Einstein posters on my bedroom wall my entire life. Amazing. <laughs> nice. And then, of course, I wanted to be Princess Leia. And then I wanted to be Carrie Fisher once I started reading her writing. And uh, yeah, so those were my first two. And then there was Nancy Drew on top of that. I love Nancy Drew. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Mon Monica and I actually regularly talk about Nancy Drew. Monica's like, I don't get it. And I'm like, Nancy Drew is the best thing in the world. Yes. <laughs> that's something very North and North American specific. It I is. That's so. true. It is true. But I had my grandmother's like hardcover editions of the original Nancy Drew books that I would just read over and over and over again. And I think that's when I first started writing is I started writing my own Nancy Drew mysteries. You could have totally ghostwritten for Carolyn Keene because that's actually how I got my heart broken for the very first time. We had to write to our hero in, I think it was grade six or grade seven. Mm -hmm. And I chose to write to Carolyn Keene and be like, you're my favorite. I love you so much. I don't know what else I said and sent off the letter and never heard anything back from her. She's then not discovered real. that she's not real. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I was heartbroken when I found that out too. But then yeah. immediately it became the first thing I ever wanted to be when I grew up. Was Carolyn Keene? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And then I was like, 
I'm going to lose this Ned Nickerson dude and Nancy Drew and Frank Hardy are going to run off together and live happily ever after. <laughs> Naturally, who needs Ned? Well, she just needs to be with a guy who can handle her intellectually. That's all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, and so tell us about your current geeky pastimes. Oh, well, I have two. Reading wise, I am... Um, <laughs> if you, those you can see behind <laughs> me in my head, because you, you can see me, uh, is my collection of Terry Pratchett's entire Discworld series, and I've been reading Ooh. it in chronological order. Nice. Yes, because I've never read it in chronological order, so I was like, let's do it. Um, but uh, lately, I've also been just crocheting an army of babies Yoda to give as gifts to my family. <laughs> I and want can, you as my family. Oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> That's so cute! Um, can I? Can, can you, you have... adopt me, please? <laughs> can you share the pattern with me? Because I will totally make those two and give them to my family. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, oh. I, I actually, I, I found the pattern um, on Etsy. So nice. I don't know if it's still there because, oh, yeah. like, Disney's clamping down on stuff. But, uh, mm. but absolutely, All this right. is my slight modification. I then modified the patterns because I always change everything. You know, I'm like, well, what if I did this with the ears and. <laughs> It's I also the cutest shit ever. I also have a tiny stormtrooper. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry that it's just an audible podcast, people. You miss out on the best stuff. We just saw the cutest little stormtrooper of all times. <laughs> it's so they're, good. They're amazing. Baby Yoda was the best part of the Mandalorian. Like I think that the entire world will agree about that. Oh yes, absolutely. And it was genius that they did not reveal it. I think yes. it was just. Oh yeah. Of- yeah. yeah, but I am 100% Baby Yoda obsessed, and I, I crochet and knit to kind of, well, well, when I watch TV or watch movies, uh, I have to do something with my hands, and it's either that or eat, so. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way, or I'm like playing a game on my phone, and then my boyfriend's like, what? are you even watching this? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I need to do something, then sit here and watch this. <laughs> right. It's like, there's another half of my brain that needs to be occupied. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Awesome. What is yes. the geeky thing we're talking about today? I mean, I already mentioned it a bit, but... Yes, apparently. So the geeky thing, hopefully, is my book, <laughs> which was basically yes. bearing my geeky, nerdy soul uh, on on about 170-something pages of 27 different personal essays. <laughs> so uh, Full Frontal Nerdity, by the way, was my blog before, and it's my website, and then it became the title of my book as well. But it basically defines the way that I try and live my life. I think that's awesome. <laughs> when we first uh, heard, or when your email first came in our inbox, I was like, Monica, somebody somebody wrote something called Full Frontal Nerdity. <laughs> wants to come on the show. Like, that's the most perfect book title in the world. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and I love that when I first had the thought, like I thought of that pun, I was suggesting it to a guy I was dating at the time and his um and his partner who they had a two-man sketch group and improv group called nerdvana which is also a fantastic <laughs> name. and they were yes. brilliant they they were and are still brilliant comedians um but then they ended up going with a different title for their second show and then i was like you know what i'm keeping that like why was i gonna give that away that's mine now <laughs> that is true <laughs> yeah yeah i think uh, no, i think that's so cool so what was it like writing uh, your own super nerdy book because like there's nobody around the bush it is the nerdiest book i've ever read and i loved every moment of it <laughs> thank you i'm so happy to hear that <laughs> it um, is really super hilarious in general amazing thank yeah. you 
it was honestly, it was really weird because it's something that I never thought that I would do. Even though the first thing I ever wanted to be was Caroline Keene and write Nancy Drew mysteries. Like I never seriously considered myself a writer, partially because I was I was also good at math and science. And it's so much easier to just be like, it's clear that you're good at those because you either get things right or you get or you don't, right? So since my whole kind of self-identity was around my nerdiness or my intelligence, then it was, I was like, I'm a math and science person. That's what I am. Uh, And then even after I came out in LA and ended up being a writer, I was writing fiction. I never thought that I would produce something that was nonfiction. I never thought that I'd be writing about math and science because once I stopped majoring in math in, in college, I, I was like, I'm not enough of an expert to ever write about these things. But that was kind of, in the end, I, th- I thought, well, what about, what about people like me who aren't experts, experts, but still love this stuff? So mm-hmm. when I started blogging, that was kind of what started leaking into all of my blogging was I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself from being like, you know, I know this is going to be weird, but this reminds me of this principle from quantum physics. Let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> and I have conversations like that with people in LA all the time. And they just look at me like I have three heads or something. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. Hear me out. Here's the basics. You know? And, and, uh, so when I was done blogging, because I had to go do other things, I just thought, let's try and turn it into a book. I never thought it would actually come to be real, but I'm excited that it is, you know, and I love the idea of kind of just being able to put together those two sides of me, the the part that's, an, you know, that's an everyday girl who has to date people and have like inner office, you know, <laughs> have to have re- interactions with people professionally and just in everyday life, like calling customer service and dealing with all the annoying things that everybody deals with, but then who also is in the back of it always going, does everyone think of Sisyphus when they're in this situation? (laughs) (laughs) Is it just me? I don't know. Let's find out. (laughs) I think what your book did so well was show... You connected something very abstract that a lot of people just would have, would never get with something that's totally relatable. And yes. the cool I studied, you basically gave me back my confidence. Well, at least, I mean, it's not confidence, but I studied maths for three weeks <laughs> because Excellent. I'm like, yeah, I was great at math in school and I'm going to study that now. And I was sitting there feeling like the greatest idiot of all times. And then I dropped it into do something else, like more creative and shit. I always loved maths. And then and in the first few lessons, the, the tutor said stuff about the fourth dimension and how trivial that is. And I was like, I have no fucking clue what he's talking about. And after I read the chapter in your book where you talk about what the fourth dimension is, I totally got it. So I was like, that's what he meant. So I was so <laughs> excited that I read that book because I felt totally educated as well. <laughs> I have to well, say, it's really funny. Monica and I were talking about this this morning because um, we were so excited to have you on the show today. And she was like, I feel so validated. And I was like, I was sitting there like, what the fuck is going on? I have no idea what this is. <laughs> like, your ma- the math stuff was like, I was feeling really intimidated when I first started to read it because the first half of the book, you're like comparing math and relationships and all the math. And I was like, this is going right over my head. <laughs> Um, is this whole book going to be over my head? <laughs> I hope it got better. <laughs> oh, it did. No, it, and I'm not even saying like I didn't enjoy it because I was like, I have no idea what's going on. 
but it's really interesting. <laughs> also, well, it makes you really feel better. Funny. My mother also, when she first read it, she said, you know, I skip over the math parts, like the equations. <laughs> My mother was a math teacher. And oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> When you put so much work and effort into this to make sense out of it in the end, and I feel you did that great. Thank you. I was like, no, really, I tried to keep it simple. There's even pep talks in there, like, hang in there. I promise this is the last one. <laughs> I did tell my boyfriend uh, after one of your equations, I was like, I'm really sorry, Tom, we need to break up because we started dating before we were 30. And he <laughs> yeah. was like, what? So we need to break up. I was like, yeah. He's like, what if we get back together? I was like, no, I don't want to. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, so we just oh. break up. I was like, yeah, bye. <laughs> as long as you just don't get married before you're 30. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, you know, maybe you and my dad would get along uh, because that was always what he said. He's like, you don't ever get married before you're 30. And if any of my cousins got married before they were 30, he gave them shit. He's like, what are you doing? You've got the rest of your life to get married. Why are you getting married at before you're 30? <laughs> Look, there are many other arguments for why that, that it's, it's you know, a, a better bet to wait until you're a more fully formed person. But I love that there's actually a math problem out there that shows it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so cool. So how, what actually made you think of bringing like rom romance and math together like that? Uh, well, some of it was, so I have had. I've been an improviser my entire life. I started when I got into theater as a kid, the way that we did children's theater when I was little was by improvising our scenes. You know, we'd, our children's theater was actually a theater of children, not for children in, in my hometown. And, um, you know, we would, every play we did was like a basic play. And we just knew the outline, like in the Wizard of Oz, in this scene, Dorothy has to meet the munchkins, like that's it. And then we would all improvise it. And that's how we wrote our scripts. So I started life as an improviser. When I came to Los Angeles, that was how I found my roots was through improv. I um, went through the Second City Training Center. So I had, I, I, and I was played on a house team for two years there. So that's my training. And improv training immediately makes you always look for connections. So I think what happened was that with my brain being wired that way, and then also having my to my life in math and science, it's just natural for me to immediately like to just see and look for and my, my brain just finds connections wherever it can. Probably one of the earliest ones that led to this book was I was actually reading Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, which is a book about statistics. I get it. <laughs> Not a lot of people are going to read it. I found it fascinating. Great book. Um, and, but as I was reading it and he's giving examples of things and I was like, okay, well, that's a fine example. I said, but this is amazingly applicable to dating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I wonder what would happen if you applied it to these kind of situations. And so that led to the, the, um, love, damn love and statistics essay. But then I just kept finding Sometimes I would be watching a TED talk on like a quantum experiment and I would think it would, I would immediately be start thinking about feminism. And other times I'm thinking about things in my love life that are frustrating, like the fact that I don't believe in soul, like a, an one soulmate or like, why am I so averse to online dating? Like, what is it about it that, that really just gets me? And so then I'd, I'd look for answers in the world of math and science because I wanted to try and prove things to myself, you know? And of course, that's still my background. That's still where I go. It's like, what experiment is out there? You know? So for example, the the uh, the marriage problem or the secretary problem, which was the one about 
waiting until you're in your 30s to marry. You know, and I'm like, oh, this exists. That's cool. Let's apply it to to dating and see if it holds up. And maybe it does. <laughs> and it's, well, what shocks me is how often it does. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things. Like, I've always felt that math was the language of the universe. And I've always found it, maybe that's what I loved about Albert Einstein more than anything, when, even when I was little, that you don't have to, that faith and spirituality and math and science are not exclusive. In fact, I feel like the frequency with which certain mathematical concepts appear in our universe, in humanity, in our life, you know, the the golden ratio and it being also a perfect fifth in music and why is it the most appealing thing to the eye and to the ear and why is it in plants? Why is it in just everywhere? I always thought, you know, that's inspiring, the fact that everything is connected. And so every time I can come up with some way that these seemingly rigid and boring math subjects and science subjects are actually connected to very human, emotional, you know, spiritual things, I just, it just confirms for me that the unification of everything, everything is connected to quote Dirk Gently. (laughs) Dirk Gently. Still have to see that though. (laughs) I really loved how you, in one of your essays, you basically said that you need logic also to be a, I mean, and I'm near, I'm I'm condensing it down now, but you need logic also to become a, to be a better person because yes. if you go at things logically instead of full frontal emotionally um then you can advance yourself basically and be more empathetic and i really love the connection between logics and empathy in in your essays because um, i was like yeah that makes total freaking sense thank you yeah and i think because you have to be creative to be logical and creativity requires well i mean it's all about empathy, creativity. It all involves being able to imagine, right? You have to mm-hmm. be able to imagine outside of your own specific experience. And I, so I think they're very deeply connected. But I also think logic is incredibly helpful because it stops you from being entirely emotional, entirely yeah. emotionally driven, right? There was an a, analogy I read once by um, a professor, and I'm, I'm sorry, it was so long ago, I cannot remember who said it or even what I was reading. But the idea of Basically, the human the human experience is your emotions are an elephant, and your brain is like the tiny person on top of the elephant trying to control it. <laughs> you know, riding the elephant, <laughs> trying to steer it. <laughs> but beefing up your logic skills kind of gives that person a little bit more control over the raging elephant that is our emotions. Yeah, it makes which, total sense. Yeah, which helps us with empathy. Because it's, it, mm. it's not just an automatic of like, well, that's not what I would do. And it's like, okay, but try and put yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm. Let's be reasonable. Mm. But I'm glad you like that one. And I who would have thought that that, by the way, came out of being really mad at customer service? <laughs> well, a lot of things come out of bad customer service and, and being mad in those situations. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, this is the least logical conversation I've had ever. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like they train customer service to be lot not logical. Yeah, but then mm-hmm. it's, it's a bummer when they hit logical people who tell them that that's just bullshit, <laughs> right? And then they don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> yeah, Kafka was definitely onto something. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I forgot we were doing rapid fire before. Are we done with rapid fire? Oh wow, we finished rapid fire like okay. ages ago. I totally well, forgot sweet. about that. Yeah, I made it. Yes. <laughs> 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 we should we should learn to announce when the rapid fire round is over. 
we oh, should I yeah like no, sweating I just... the whole time <laughs> <laughs> no you did a very great job it was an amazing rapid fire round even though you didn't notice it it was over already <laughs> yeah that, that's how good it was we just kind of seamlessly just... went into the actual interview absolutely was that was great yeah <laughs> yeah no monica i was thinking about your experience with math and I had a very similar experience with math in college because I, I one of the reasons I stopped being a math major was because I was one of well it was I was either the only girl or one of two girls in all of my math yeah. classes and I felt like you know coming from a public school high school experience and coming into a world like Harvard where most of my classmates had already taken some advanced math even in high school um, and then also not having any really support or role models like I mean every professor was male. Mm. I felt like I was struggling. And even though, you know, I managed to figure it out with some, you know, thank God for the amazing help and patience of one particular classmate of mine. Shout out to <laughs> Ben Ron. He was amazing. Um, <laughs> but uh, by the end of it, you know, I, I had to invest so much time and, and worry into just focusing on, on, you know, pulling my weight within that mm. major. And then, I didn't have time to do any of the other things I wanted to get out of yeah. college, like social experiences, like trying out Model Congress and being in the band and doing theater, you know. So I decided in the end, you know, I sat down. You don't actually declare your major until the end of your freshman year at Harvard. And so I sat down and I made up a mock schedule of like what my classes would be for the next three years if I stayed in math and what they would be if I switched to English. And I was just like, this seems like so much fun and even and I know that I'll have time because, you know, a lot of my outside work will be reading and mm -hmm. writing and I'm comfortable doing that. So I that's why I switched. But, you know, two years later, I ran into the professor of the math class that I was in my, you know, my first semester. And he I just ran into him in the middle of uh, a courtyard. <laughs> and right. I was... <laughs> Yeah, I was with my boyfriend at the time, and and he was actually also a the professor was a pianist who was accompanying my boyfriend on a a, a solo piece, and so they stopped to chat, and then he said, "Oh, I remember you." He said, "Why didn't you stay? You were good." <sighs> Thank and you I for said, not telling me this earlier, why, asshole. <laughs> why didn't you tell me that two years ago? Why didn't anybody help me understand that? Because I just thought I was drowning, and that's very common for girls. That's why we leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That I, I felt in because ours, our university and college system is quite a bit different. So we have like a lot of people in the beginning because it's free. So everybody can go, right? So we had like a, a classroom of 100 or more people, even though it was math and it was already something where not a lot of people will attend. But they were just <laughs> running through it all and they say everything is so trivial. Like it's so simple and easy and ta da da. And it's just the beginnings. And I was like, no no idea like seriously i couldn't even i had like learning groups which um who i talked with and they could discuss the matters and i was just blanking like totally blanking yeah and i think it came to me too early in life probably a bit later in life i would have sticked with it and i would have been the one where like i'm a freaking girl i can do this like i can show you all even though i'm a girl i can do this but right but we shouldn't yeah. expect 17 and 18 year olds to have that kind of self-confidence yeah. yet. Yeah, I didn't have that. So <laughs> that's also probably why I left and went to something that I was already good at. So, but it was social and it was great and was still worth it. But yeah, math yeah. will always be in my heart because it's still yeah. great. I like it a lot. I think that's I part of why 
I write stuff like this is because, yeah, you still love it. There's just a lot yeah. part of you, too, that's like, what if? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think by you connecting it to everything that's happening to you and to all the social experiences in your life, I think it makes it way more relatable. So it doesn't mean that it has to be dry and you have to sit at home and do all the numbers with weird things that is not relatable at all. It is so relatable. Yes. Yeah. And that, I mean, it has always always really irked me whenever people say, oh, I don't need this. I'm not going to need to know this in both directions, because my math and science friends were always like, why do I need to know how to write? I don't need to know how to write well, you know? And I remember a time my mother, my mother was a, a math teacher and among other things, but for a while she taught math and she had to, she witnessed a car accident once and like she had to give her statement to the police and you have to give a written statement. And she said, you know, you don't think of these things, but it's really, really important to be able to communicate clearly yeah. in writing, you know, but then my English major friends and, and my acting friends and, and all of, you know, whenever they say like, oh, whatever, like you don't need math, I've got a calculator or whatever. And I think, no, this, there are principles of logic that are at the foundations of math and science that are incredibly important for us all to understand. Mm. <laughs> and they're incredibly useful to everyday life. Because look yeah. at how easy it is for people to lie to us with math or with statistics, you know? We need to be able to defend against that. Yeah, and you need to be able to be aware that statistics is not... It always depends on how statistics are presented. And people who have no idea about math and who have no idea about statistics will be like, yeah, but that's what the newspaper said. And you can be like, yeah, but the newspaper just showed you a fraction of the entire result and that's just bullshit and you can't do that because that's crap and it's not true. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, I would hope that the idea of these kinds of essays puts a little bit more critical thinking into our emotional life because... yeah. In the same way, though, I also feel it's very important to put a little bit more emotion and humanity into our academic life as well. Yeah. You know, as I say, put the intelligence back in emotional intelligence. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Okay, so I'm going to take us back off this science route because it's all going over my head as interesting as it is to talk, to talk about. Let's, I'm just going to pull you back and take awesome. us to LA, Kate. How did you get into uh, screenwriting and, and that entire side of your life? Because you do talk about that in your book and it, I found it really interesting. Yeah, uh, it was a surprise to me, honestly. Again, I feel like I often describe myself as the dumbest smart person you'll ever meet, and it's 100% <laughs> accurate. Um, I, even though I always loved writing as a child, I never thought I would be a writer. And in fact, when I came to LA, I thought that I was going to get into the film business. I thought I was going to be an actor, or I was going to go behind the scenes and be like a, a director, assistant director, because I was a stage manager and an actor all my life doing theater. So I... Uh, but improv was where I felt comfortable. So I went through the Second City Conservatory. And when you get... So Second City's philosophy is... I don't I don't know if you know. Do you know what the Second City is? The, I'm familiar, yeah. Okay. So they were the birthplace of improv in Chicago. They led to um, SCTV and Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. If you love Tina Fey, she came out of Second City. Amy Butler. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, it's basically the Ivy League of improv. And they have training centers around in other cities in the country. So I went through theirs uh, in um, Los Angeles. And you start off learning improv and performing improv. But then in the end, you take that improv and you eventually start 
creating sketch comedy out of it. And so when you graduate, you're performing a sketch show that you as a class have written. And our director at that point, when we got to that level, he, you know, one of the first things he says is, if you really want to make sure that you're on stage and that you're doing the performances that you want, you have to write stuff for yourself. You know, he was saying that to all of us. And my reaction was, oh, <laughs> why? I don't want to be a writer. Why are you making me write? I don't want, you know, and I was just like such a crab. <laughs> and then I, I co-wrote a couple of sketches with one of my uh, classmates. And then I had, you know, and then there were other ideas that were thrown out, but then nobody knew what to do with them. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me develop it. And very quickly, because everyone knows you better than you know yourself, right? Very quickly, the writing was the part that I loved the most. In fact, it got to the point where I wrote a sketch for the entire group. There were 11 of us and there were 10 people in it. And my classmates were all like, I said, everybody's in it. And they're like, well, you're not in it. What part are you going to play? And I said, what do you mean I'm not in it? I wrote it. <laughs> of course I'm in it. You know, like I didn't even, I, I didn't see that as it, as it, like to me, the whole, my soul was whatever was on the page. And, uh, so eventually, so I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. I could never give up writing. This is who I am. I'm a writer. And at the time, I was a, an assistant to a woman who was a, an acting and literary manager. And she had an idea for a, a, a movie that she and her friend thought should exist, but they didn't know how to write it. And so she said, you should try writing screenplays. And I said, great. I have no idea how to do that. So I read every screenplay I could get my hands on that was in her office. I read Sid Field's book, Screenplay, which is still one of the best books written about writing screenplays. And then I was like, cool. And then I wrote one. And it went really well. And it actually almost sold. It was a terrifying experience <laughs> because suddenly like studios are you know, spending five days deciding whether or not they're going to greet it. Like, like it's the, the last person at the head of the studio, right? Is deciding whether wow. they're going to make your movie. And, and people are like, we want to take meetings with you. And you're going to meetings. They're like, what else do you have? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first thing I've ever wrote. Um, so I had the bug. That movie, by the way, never got made. It ended up not getting made. Uh, nobody, in the end, everybody passed. But then I just, that's how I became a screenwriter. I was like, oh, cool. So then I wrote about five more screenplays and I've been writing TV pilots for the last few years. Um, I get a lot of rejections because everything I write has a female lead. Mm -hmm. <sighs> a lot of it is criticized as being too smart. I pride myself on the fact that nobody has ever rejected anything I've written because it wasn't well written. They've only ever rejected it because it's too smart or too girly. And once too earnest, whatever that means. <laughs> I feel though that time will come. I feel you have to keep writing those or send old ones in because eventually that's going to come. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an industry where most people don't ever have that kind of success. So the fact that people have read my work, that people like my work, that waiting for one film that almost got made to get made, you know, caused me to write a blog for two years that turned into a book that now exists in the world, I'd say... All of those are pretty awesome successes. Yeah, it's like there's been no bad experiences out of out of it. It's all it's all led to something else for you that has been pretty incredible. Absolutely. Really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I agree 100% with Cindy Lauper, who thinks that every failure <laughs> is the stepping stone for future success. <laughs> totally. You should all listen to Cindy Lauper because she's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, you can't go wrong. <laughs> yes. You can't go wrong. Um there was a part in Full Frontal Nerdity where one of your writing gigs uh, came from a friend who thought 
of hiring a, a female writer just as an afterthought. Yes. And it, I felt like I, I felt a wee bit sad that like bringing in a woman was just an afterthought. But I don't think it's a rare thing in Hollywood, is it? It's not. And even now, even now, when it has now been quite clear for years that most of the top comedies that have come, especially on television, most of the top comedies on television that have come to be in maybe the last like five or six years, the thing that they all have in common is a gender balanced writer room. Really? And still, I, I, and still it's, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of power for whom the idea of, oh, hey, we should probably not just have men in this room let's get some different perspective. It's still like a secondary thought. It's still, we still, it's still not the norm. Uh, yeah. I will say that Yeah, my friend who did give me that, that staff writing job is a, is a lovely person. And I hope I made that clear in that essay. Like he is well, a great did, guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I feel bad that I used him as an example of that. But on the other hand, I was, I was the seventh man on a six man writing staff because yeah. they filled it. And then they thought this is a family drama. Maybe we should have, a female perspective in the writer's room. <laughs> Jesus. But I think like using somebody who is your friend and who, who is a, a good guy and he, that's still the bias that he has. Like it's, it's really telling. Right. And it's, and, and, and it's the bias we all have. Cause I had that bias too. Yeah. I mean, not, I yeah. was, I was clearly appalled that there wasn't another woman in the room, but at the same time, I also was absolutely certain that I was the weakest link. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, for no reason. I think you also wrote that really great in that article, in that essay that we have to question ourselves about the things that we believe about ourselves that we cannot do just be, even though all the facts are for us and we're like, as you are amazingly educated, you have all the experience, you should be on top of that fucking list, but you put yourself on the very bottom of the list and it's just something we need to be more aware of ourselves all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I basically was experiencing imposter syndrome before I had any idea what imposter syndrome was. <laughs> I'm so glad it has a name. I really like the name, imposter yeah. syndrome, even though the, exactly. the syndrome is shit. But of course, the important thing about yeah. imposter syndrome is that you're not an imposter. You just feel like yeah. an imposter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's true. Yeah, that you have every right and qualification to be there, but you still think you don't or worry that you don't. Yeah. And it's a very, it's very distinctly a, a female perspective, which is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. So somebody told me that you have a George Clooney story to share with us. Oh, I do. And let me just say at the end of the story, you will realize that George Clooney is a lovely person. <laughs> um, <laughs> my first act really when I came to Los Angeles. So when I came to Los Angeles, I did extra work. I decided to do extra work, which is background acting, right? So they're the people who are just randomly on the street or all the kids in the hall in a high school story. And I just did it because I knew that it would be a great way to experience being on a set and get my bearings. I'd never been on a film set before. Theater person all the way, right? So the first job that I had was working as an extra for the reshoots of Solaris, which is a sci-fi movie that George Clooney did. Mm-hmm way back in the day. Um, It was like literally the first week that I was in Los Angeles. And so I was part of a, I was part of a mass. Like there were like 250 extras on the first day, but then they picked like 12 of us to be in a drugstore scene. The next day they were doing reshoots and they picked me in part because the, I have 
normally I have very long hair, like down past my waist, and the the hairdressing ladies put me my hair in Princess Leia buns. Ooh, yeah. So the director liked that look and was like, "We want this person." So that day, there's like twelve extras, and the place that I'm placed, my my when they say back to one, they mean back to your first position is I'm supposed to be browsing the end of an aisle in this drugstore. And the camera is literally starting right behind me because the shot is on George Clooney, who's in the aisle that I'm at the end of, right? So they're shooting <sighs> over from behind me to George Clooney. And then he's going to walk a, like past me and around me. And like, that was my job was to just stand there and be shopping. And P.S. This is a Steven Soderbergh movie. So Soderbergh's operating the camera. What the fuck, man? I know, right? And it's a sci-fi movie where it, it, the costuming is everybody's covered. So you're wearing, I was wearing these bulky clothes and like including these bulky gloves. The idea is everybody keeps their skin covered, right? Um, and so the aisle that they placed me at the end of was candles, you know, just like, you know, the, the candles that you buy in glass jars, scented candles for your home. And I'm just standing there pretending to shop and my obsessive nature my perfectionist nature takes over and so what do i do i'm just absent-mindedly i'm organizing the candles because they're out of order right <laughs> i'm just like standing there you know my pretend shopping is, is putting everybody in like groups and making sure they're all facing forward <laughs> and i pick one up and i because of the gloves i drop it it shatters on the floor no. so i'm surrounded by broken glass I did this right before we started to take. So I do it in front of George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh and they have to stop filming because there's broken glass on set. Shit. I'm not allowed to help hook it up. They're like the assistant director's yelling like freeze. And like a man comes over and physically lifts me up and moves me bodily out of the broken glass zone. Right? And I have to stand there mortified while they clean it up and then go back, everybody back to one. Right. And, and then they do the take and I'm just like dying of embarrassment. And George Clooney has to walk past me every time they reset the shot. And he, re he walks past me and he just leans over and he says, did you break anything else while I was gone? Like every time I was And to my credit, I said, only my spirit. And he laughed. <laughs> but he was so nice. You know, he was just, he, he. He kindly was ribbing me in a gentle way so that I would kind of get past it and realize that it was okay. <laughs> yeah, I was like, welcome to Hollywood. Oh, man. He's, <laughs> He's a true gentleman, it. though. Like, that, that's what you want. He you want someone to... <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it became our joke for the rest of the day. Every time he's like, did you break anything while I was gone? What'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's a good man. <laughs> I've always thought that, so now I've got some confirmation. It feels really good. Oh, I didn't. Hey. I thought he was an ass, but now I really? yeah, yeah, I don't know. No, he's apparently a very good person. Damn it. One of the good ones. I know. Good good looking and a good one. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Those are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Right. He has every reason to not be a good like I mean, like he, all the signs are there that he would be a total asshole. But yeah, that's why I'm <laughs> That's where I was coming from. <laughs> but he's and, got like a really badass wife as well. And I think that if he was a, an absolute asshole, I don't think that that would have happened. Right. I mean, yes. it took him a while, but yeah, she's yeah. pretty badass. Well, you know, he needed somebody yeah. who was that quality. That is true. And he needed to make sure he was over 30. So. <laughs> right. And she was, was over 30. 
Because, you know, he exactly. got married once when he was really young and it didn't work out. So, you know, he was waiting. <laughs> so smart. Because he knew. Shit. He understood the logarithm of love. He understood it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will not talk about math. No. Sorry. <laughs> So I brought it up. I was going to say, Amanda, you brought it up that time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think if I've embarrassed myself in front of any other famous people. The closest thing I came was I saw Drew Barrymore on the street once and I was convinced that she was, I was like, I must have gone to high school with this person. She's so familiar. And then I went up and I started to say hi. And then I was like, oh no, you're familiar because you're Drew Barrymore. (laughs) Jesus. Never mind. <laughs> That's also a great one. I did grow up with you, but not in the way that I'm thinking. <laughs> I just grew up seeing you on TV every day. Exactly. <laughs> you were just in ET when I was also a child. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. That must be so. That's something I can totally, I totally cannot wrap my head around walking around in Los Angeles and seeing all the famous people. It is weird. It is weird. And I have to say, it's kind of awkward because like one of my favorite character actors or just comedic actors in general is Diedrich Bader. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, I think I he's currently on the TV show American Housewife, but he was on uh, the Drew Carey show. Uh, he said that guy, if you ever look him up, okay. he's great. He's fantastic. Um, he goes to the same yoga studio that I do and he's frequently in a class that ends right before the yoga class that I go to regularly begins. Mm. So I'm always out in the hallway and he's like walking past me and it's weird because like this has now been going on for three years. I've never said anything. I follow him on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, this is such a weird state because like I feel like when I see him that I know him because he tweets regularly and I read his tweets. He has no idea who I am other than the random girl who's occasionally outside the door of his yoga class when he gets out of yoga. I'm like, what a weird relationship. Yeah. <laughs> that is completely <laughs> one-sided. But yeah, but then you're, but then I'm also like, at this point, it would just be so awkward to just say, hey, I'm a huge fan. After three years of seeing him like twice a week. <laughs> Would it though? Yeah. Maybe well, that's just maybe that's out of true. principle you should do that one day. Just because maybe. why why not? Yeah. That's I'm your geek carrying homework. Say right. hi. <laughs> to finally say hi. He did say hi to me once, uh, but I think because he thought I was someone else. <laughs> but I said hi back. I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Can we be best friends? <laughs> Can we be friends? I love your garden. Your flowers that you tweet about are really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun thing about social media where you think you know people or where you are aware of what's happening in other people's lives and then you see them and then they don't know that you know what's happening in their lives. Right. Yeah. It's just like, oh no, I'm just I don't actually need to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) I know everything about you. We don't need to have a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. It's also why I've been I've always been bad at social media because I'm it's not in my it's not my instinct to tweet out or post on facebook like my most personal yeah. moments or whatever i mean i guess i'm getting more comfortable with it but yeah mostly i'm just like this is where i should put out actual you know i feel like the quality of a comment that i make on social media should have the same level of vetting as something that i would put in a book or a, or a script you know it's like it has to be fit for public consumption which is not <laughs> the way a lot of people live their social media lives that is true it's true yeah and which also a high standard for yourself yeah, I don't tweet because, very often. <laughs> because you don't do that with talking either. 
like go through that hardcore field to do you true although i do like to try and think before i say something try that is generally a good idea but just not always works at least not in my case <laughs> right now i mean it also depends on who you're with right i mean when you're with your friends mm. you can say whatever you want and they aren't going to hold it against you <laughs> rarely <laughs> fortunately right amanda <laughs> things happen well, you know things happen <laughs> <laughs> well of course yes but you know at least when you go hyperbolic you have a chance of them being like i know you didn't mean it that way <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> That is very true. <laughs> so Kate, what advice would you give to young nerdy girls looking to either really nerd out with their life or maybe kind of combine their two interests like you did? Oh, I, I think the best advice that I can have is to be proud of your nerdity. Like, don't try and hide it. I think about when I was growing up, I, first of all, I will always be grateful to my parents that they raised me in a way that it never occurred to me to pretend to be someone other than who I was but I was also I was also very much aware of the impact that my nerdiness like my love my being the captain of the math team for example like what that impact it had on my social life I was aware of the fact that it made me not appealing to boys they liked me as a person they just didn't think of me as mm-hmm. girlfriend potential or or they just didn't think of me that way I was there for homework help I was not there for romance um and so i what i I basically wrote myself off like i let that seep into my who i was and i was like well you have to choose between one or the other you have to either be smart or you have to be social you can't be both you can't be someone who is worthy of respect and love in a in a good relationship uh and also be living your best nerdy life (laughs) right and that isn't true for one thing and it shouldn't be true and so i really hope that nerdy girls will accept or will demand both honestly that they will not try and diminish themselves in any way not try and hide their nerdity you know um full frontal nerdity is you know, it, it it's evocative of the idea of full frontal nudity in part because I want it to be about bearing your nerdity, like being proud of it, let it shine. <laughs> um, and if somebody, if it changes the way somebody feels about you, then that's on them. That's not on you. Mm-hmm. Amen. The world will that's catch awesome up. Advice. <laughs> yeah. You think in your days as a nerd and geeky person, that through the years there has been some changes in that regard? I do, although I think that they're not as big as it seems. You know, Mm -hmm. I still think that, I think women are now more invited into those worlds, but as you, I'm sure, know well, especially, I'm not all that big in the gaming world, but I'm aware of the gaming world. Um, Mm -hmm. And even even in geek culture, you're allowed as long as you're a certain kind of geek, as long as you're mm-hmm. a certain kind of gamer girl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's still not yet at a place where women are allowed to just be people who mm. are female and have their own perspective on the world. You know, the cool girl concept is still very strong. And so the women who we let be open about their nerdity or about their geekery are, they're either superheroes you know, like, because they're, they're superhuman, and we hold them up on a pedestal of, you know, they're literally Supergirl, or Trinity, or, you know, 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, or they have to be into exactly everything that the guys are into in the same way that they're mm-hmm. into it, and and it's still like let the let the men dictate. And that's true. That's kind of it's not just geek culture, but um, it's really pervasive in geek culture. So I, while I do think that those doors are opening more to women, because because we're kicking them down, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, true that. Yeah, um, we still have a long way to go before it's not shocking well before we actually have influence on the overall kind of on the on the liquid we're all swimming in on the on the perspective of of the world it's still the rules are still made primarily by guys let's just put it that Mm -hmm. way it's a change yeah well exactly and so i just every time we have a girl out there who you know even even if you're not into math but the ones that are into math that are willing to talk about statistics or that can talk about feminism relating it to quantum theory you know, or cats, you know, um, right? Relating cats to quantum theory, like, or even just women who are willing to talk about their obsession with superheroes, with Lois Lane, or with Wonder Woman, or with mythology, you know, poetry, any of that, just let your academic light shine. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit the, the, the mold that nerdy men have built. That gave me chills. Yeah, <laughs> that was beautiful. Yeah. It, it, well, it feels you. inadequate to say anything after that, actually. <laughs> Here, I'll just give you a palate cleanser. Baby, oh, you're a palate yeah. cleanser. <laughs> so uh, you know, so this has been like an amazing conversation. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. You, you're fabulous. I also love, I'm trying to get into podcasts, so I love that I have one now. Ooh, to listen yeah. to you regularly. Yeah. So (laughs) Yeah. That's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you so 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 much for for coming on today, Kate. Um it's been an absolute pleasure and I know that our listeners are gonna have had a great time listening to us all chat away as well. Um where can our when where can they find you online? Well, on Twitter and Instagram I am at F Frontal Nerd (laughs) because full frontal nerdity didn't fit. Uh, so at F Frontal Nerd. Uh, and my website is fullfrontalnerdity.com. There is a hyphen between full and frontal because that is grammatically correct. There you go. Ah. <laughs> also on, uh, yeah, Full Frontal Nerdity is also on Facebook as well. So I think that's Fantastic. enough. And we'll, yeah, we'll put all that in the show notes for you. Uh, links to your book, Full Frontal Nerdity. Monica and I have read it. think it's amazing. And Thanks. you should definitely read it as well. You can get it anywhere books are sold. There you go. So thanks again, Kate, and we will see you next week for another really awesome episode of Geek Herring. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode of Geek Herring, why not leave us an iTunes review? You can also find us on social at Geek Herring and over on geekherring.com. This show is brought to you by... Dragon Powered Studio. Find more at dragonpoweredstudio.com.